Hello, I'm Alex Mosed, and we're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between big tech monopolies and traditional incumbents, and trying to sort out where this whole thing is going to settle out. Uh, so today we're going to talk about a few big tech companies that have announced uh, fundraises, all within the two to $250 million range, from Stripe to GitLab to uh, Postmates, which you're probably familiar with. So we're going to take a look at that, look at the um, kind of food delivery marketplace space, um, shifting then to China. And uh, some recent comments from the U.S. State Department, another Chinese platform IPO, which was just announced. Uh, there's also some Larry Ellison news where he was throwing out some Uber shade um, and related them to a cat or his cat, something like that. Um, also, Walmart has some plans with food delivery and, um, and, and offering a competitive uh, unlimited food delivery option of their own. So let's dive in. The first topic here is Stripe has just announced raising $250 million uh, at a $35 billion valuation, which puts them as one of the highest priced or highest valued tech companies in the world. And here's the crazy thing about this. Literally earlier in 2019, they were valued at about $20 billion. And so like six months later, they, uh, they almost doubled uh, their value. I mean, how does any of that make sense? Well, Makes sense to you. I think they've they've done a good job building their business on uh, app developers and basically capitalizing on that whole economy. They facilitate payments. They're the payment gateway, basically that handles a lot of that stuff. I don't see how they doubled the value of the business in six months. There's also it's a very competitive industry. They've got PayPal, they've got Adyen, uh, and a few others out there that they compete with, and. I think it might be reflective of all of the uh, late stage money chasing returns more than it is necessarily that their business grew double in value. Yeah, I'm trying to pull up this graph here. So um, this graph shows this is where um, Stripe was in January. You can see it right around $22.5 billion. Avian is the other big competitor, kind of mobile first type of, of payment uh, competitor. And that's a European company. And they had a fundraise earlier this year, Adian did, um, which then kind of brought their valuation even keel with Stripes. Now Stripe has raised another $250 million on a $35 billion valuation. They're giving up, what, less than 1% of dilution for a quarter billion dollars. And, you know, it seems to me kind of like they're probably setting themselves up to just do a uh, a direct listing rather than an IPO. That might be right. And, you know, there's been a lot of news from Bill Gurley, Benchmark, and, and others where Slack did a direct listing. They didn't do an IPO. And that IPOs are basically, if you think about um, IPOs are basically you go around to a bunch of bankers and you do a very manual process where now you have to work with bankers, so other banks that are then going to agree to, you know, have investors uh, buy your stock at the initial public offering. 
and you are going to raise money as a part of the initial public offering. So you're going to issue new shares in the company, which would give you some dilution. Um, And you have to figure out what that strike price is for the stock at that public offering. And the media always kind of heralds IPOs that are underpriced in the sense that, you know, if you IPO at 20 bucks and then the stock jumps up to $30, everyone kind of considers that a win. Um, Unfortunately, it's not a win for (laughs) the actual company that's IPOing. Right. And essentially it's saying that it was mispriced it basically. And they could have gotten more capital if they'd priced it properly. Exactly. Um, And the reason why you're doing this is because it's a manual process where you're basically having to, yeah, you have some models, you have some smart analysts, but you're really then just basically working with the banks and how much demand there is, how much interest there is in them purchasing your stock um, and, and the new options or the new shares that you're issuing. And so Bill Gurley and others have really come out against this because not only is it an inefficient way to appropriately price the value um, of a company, but there's also it's also loaded up with a bunch of fees uh, from the then the the investment banks that are then helping to facilitate the actual banks to, you know, to actually do the IPO. Um, All that is said is to say that the 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 direct listing. Is then algorithmic. And it actually just relies on a much more purer way to balance supply and demand where you have basically like a, what is it? A blind Dutch auction. Um, And basically you are uh, enabling all buyers and sellers to, to match in a blind matchmaking process. You're not raising new money. So they're just listing the shares. You bring quicker liquidity to some of the folks on your team. And yep. So yeah, it gives you liquidity. It now um, helps your employees. Where if your employees have shares, they now have liquidity to divest those shares or monetize those shares if they've been locked up for many years and waiting to do that. Um, so that you know, there's 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 different pros and cons to to the two different approaches. But you're definitely seeing um, the direct listings get more momentum amongst the tech community. Particularly so, companies that don't need capital. Yes, that don't need to if go. We, if we don't need the capital, why are we going to go pay a bunch of fees to bankers if we can do this much cheaper? And really what you're looking for in that case then is an exit event in liquidity for your investors and your employees. And the direct listing gives you that uh, without having to go raise fun, raise money uh, and uh, potentially pay a lot of money to some investment banks. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, my... Prediction is that Stripe will definitely do a direct listing rather than an actual IPO. Uh, GitLab here also raised $268 million. So we're kind of right in the same territory here at uh, um, a a much lower valuation, $2.7 billion. GitLab looks like it's a platform, right? GitLab is, how would you describe GitLab? They're basically a GitHub competitor, um, seem a little more focused on enterprises. I know they do some stuff with big companies like an IBM and that kind of stuff, where basically they they are a Git repository and DevOps kind of management software. They do have a kind of community aspect of it similar to GitHub, but I would say like an order of magnitude or two smaller than GitHub is. So they, they might be doing uh, percentage-wise better at monetizing customers. GitHub has a lot of free users, essentially. But that mm-hmm. big community aspect of GitHub is certainly uh, a moat that GitHub has that, for example, GitLab doesn't. Um, still would consider it similar kind of a collaboration platform like GitHub. 
But at the end of the day, uh, GitHub has this massive community, uh, and it's not really just the software that creates the value. It's this whole ecosystem they bring. Yeah. And uh, Git, GitLab has that. It's just much more constrained and much more narrow. So they, they project that they're going to go public. They've set the date uh, sometime in November of 2020. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it, it's a uh, plausible candidate for inclusion in the ETF, but we'll need, we will need to dig into it further when that time comes. Yep. Another company raising roughly $250 million bucks is Postmates, raising $225 million. For the lowest valuation of all three companies we were talking about, for valuation of about $2.4 billion, which is up from $1.85 billion in January. All these companies are making big strides in eight months. Um, and uh, this one, though, is being seen as a little bit less advantageous in the sense that um, there, I guess, was some chatter about Postmates being ready to IPO. And or so being acquired, potentially. They were looking at it as sale, like when Uber Eats or DoorDash, who are ostensibly bigger platforms in the food delivery space than Postmates is, would they come in and want to acquire us? And nothing came out there. Yep. DoorDash is valued at $12.6 billion. Uber Eats, I was looking at the um, Uber's uh, quarterly earnings, and they break it out here. So. It looks like it's around three, at least $3 billion in quarterly GMV for Uber Eats, um, which is, you know, over $12 billion on an annual basis. So yeah, Uber Eats is definitely very value, strong. If you see these things, you know, typically valued at a, a multiple of GMV, it would be in the ballpark of a DoorDash. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's some rumors there. So this is kind of saying, hey, maybe they are actually just burning a lot more cash than people had thought still need to go down the traditional IPO route, still need to actually raise capital and, and, and in, in an IPO um, as opposed to the direct listing. Right. I think um, you, you still could see there an acquisition happen at some point uh, as well. I don't think it's a done deal that these things stay separate forever. That's Food delivery is a very high margin business. There's definitely a regional winner-take-all dynamic. So within a given geography, there's not going to be you know, five different competitors forever. We saw Caviar recently got acquired by DoorDash as one example. And I think that there's probably more consolidation to come and you've still got uh, Grubhub uh, Seamless out there, which has a little bit of a different model, which is they don't always have the delivery people. Sometimes they originally started connecting restaurants basically with diners and then the restaurants had their own delivery people. Now they've started to layer in some of their own uh, of Grubhub's delivery people basically as a service. Um, so you, you're seeing a few of these things out there. I think at the end of the day, you're not going to have four or five of them. So I would expect some consolidation, uh, to happen before these things start to make money. Yep. That would make sense. Either way, Larry Ellison wouldn't think very highly of <laughs> your business model. Apparently he was at a private dinner at his house in San Francisco with some tech entrepreneurs, presumably Travis Kalanick or Dara, current CEO of Uber were not present. As he said that his his cat could have written the Uber app and and I guess coded it. Guess guess it's a not so private dinner, huh? I guess, you know, Larry's a little salty. Um <laughs> he's seventy-five, he's a mega, mega, mega multi, multi billionaire. Oracle is um at least over two hundred and fifty billion dollars in market cap. That thing has just continued to chug along and and gain in value despite 
it being a SaaS business, despite them failing to really figure out an app marketplace model like Salesforce has done. Yeah. Um, but they have still just continued to grow lots of M&A that they've been doing, but still just continue to to grow that business into a giant behemoth We've got um, in a very linear way. Enterprise software, particularly the kind they deal with, it's a lot of uh, technical debt and heavy legacy stuff that basically for companies, once you're on the Oracle system in a huge company, switch away from that as like a multi-billion dollar project. Uh, so they've definitely got a lock on that market and the the moats just from the switching costs are pretty high. So they've been able to make a pretty good business around that. Sorry, $175 billion market cap. What's Salesforce? Salesforce is 136. Wow. Actually, that is much closer than I had thought. Okay. Okay. Now the next thing I got to look at here is what's their relative revenue. Right. Because Salesforce only has $13 billion in revenue. And Oracle has $40 billion in revenue. So there you go. Point proven. Much better multiple on Salesforce for the platform. Much better multiple from Salesforce. They have the app marketplace. Oracle does not. They have less than a third of the revenue, yet probably, what, 80, 75, 80% of the market cap of Oracle. Um, I mean, that goes to show, right, that on $13 billion in revenue and, and roughly a billion of that coming from the app marketplace. But that billion is now contributing over a third of Salesforce's net income because it's such high margin from the app marketplace that they are able to almost be neck and neck with Oracle from a market cap standpoint. Wow. That is, I did not realize that. I always thought that there was much more disparity between the two. But that's yeah. I mean, what you see is Salesforce has the kind of typical platform multiple, about 10x uh, on revenue, and Oracle has the typical SaaS multiple, about 4x. So SaaS companies often four to six. I'd say platforms typically in the eight to 12 range, uh, and that's the you know, good reason you get a lot more of that profitability and defensibility out of that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Don't think Benioff is poo pooed Uber yet. So. Um, <laughs> So uh, shifting over to China, China Video App seeks funds at a $25 billion value before their IPO. Um, so this startup, oh man, these names are tough. Kuwashu. Cool. <laughs> cool uh, oh man, I don't know. It's considering a US IPO. They also have these short videos. I don't know if anyone's familiar with TikTok, which has been blowing up. Um, it's those which yeah, have these like a, this six is basically videos. A, similar to a kind of a TikTok competitor. So they're competitive with ByteDance, the company that owns TikTok. Uh, difference here being they're backed by Tencent. So Tencent, which I think led this round. Yep. Billion uh, dollar round. Is basically a huge investor in them to basically say, all right, we have, you know, they have WeChat and they view TikTok and ByteDance, the owner, basically as a huge competitor to them. And they want to have their own answer to that the same way that, you know, there's Ali, Alipay and uh, we pay and all these kind of things where you see these platforms competing. Uh, they thought this was a threat basically to their messaging platform and the dominance they have there. So they're, they're trying to fund basically a company that gives them an answer to that. Mm -hmm. And then potentially go public uh, maybe next year sometime. Um, everyone's kind of throwing around this IPO language, like raises a big fund before IPO. I mean, okay. I mean, just raise a big fund. I mean, the IPO stuff 
Who knows? You know, who knows yeah. what happens with the equity market? It's not like they filed for an IPO. Just and ask WeWork. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, they, they love to throw that stuff around. <clears throat> ByteDance, by the way, rumored to be valued at about $75 billion, having raised about $4 billion. That includes debt financing. Right. Um, and at $75 billion would put ByteDance as the most valuable uh, private tech company in the world. Um, so that'll be interesting. And um, in not so good China news. So we've talked a lot about Huawei um, and, and, what, and what the U.S. government has done to impose different um, sanctions on Huawei and, and why at least outside of China, particularly say in, in Huawei's European phone business, for example, it's basically dead. It's, it's KIA. Um, or, or no, DOA, dead on arrival, not KIA, <laughs> DOA. But anyway, it was also killed in action. Yes, it, both of those, both of those acronyms. Um, anyway, it's not good news, right? And uh, someone in the U.S. State Department, Doctor Christopher Ashley Ford, um, not the top dog in the U.S. State Department, but I'd say like mid to upper level. Um, Interestingly enough, on September 11th, had this speech that said Huawei and its siblings, the Chinese tech giants, national security and foreign policy implications. Basically, what Dr. Ford is saying here is that it is not just Huawei that are acting on behalf of the Chinese government. Right. It is also the large Chinese tech monopolies, which we've spoken about Many times before, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, that are essentially an arm of the state, an extension of the Chinese uh, Communist Party. So we, we have Party. this uh, you know, monopoly question rising up in the U.S. where the U.S. government is starting to look at Facebook, Google, Amazon, and these companies and say, oh, are there antitrust concerns here? China took a very different route, which said, not really. We're just going to use these basically as national champions. In a lot of ways, they... Uh, serve as you know quasi extensions of the state. Certainly, in the terms of the ability to gather data and monitor it, they're certainly uh, responsible to the state in terms of the kinds of content and things that they're allowed uh, to broadcast. And if you don't comply, you get shut down. Uh, so there's definitely a, a much tighter integration between company and state here than anything we've uh, typically seen in the West. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm just highlighting an interesting excerpt here. China's technology national champions are the standard bearers for their surveillance and information-facilitated coercive technologies that are making this oppressive police state possible, and jurisdictions such as the oxymoronically named Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region are where the pilot programs and proof-of-concept studies for these technologies of repression are being developed and carried out. These technologies are vital to China's repressive campaign against Uyghurs, uh, ethnic Kazakhs, and other members of Muslim minority groups. Um... Basically, um, what, what, what Dr. Ford is saying is that the technology and the scale of tech monopolies in China are enabling China to do these kinds of programs. You've also probably heard about the social credit rating system that China is rolling out across China. It's basically give you a rating on how good of a citizen you are um, or a comrade you are. And um, all of that is enabled by opening up the network and the data from within these tech platforms to the Chinese government. Now, look, at the same time, these 
these these Chinese tech monopolies don't really have any choice right. because if they don't do this, they're going to get shut down. So what are you going to do? You're between a rock and a hard place. I mean, you have to comply. We've actually seen their stock prices take a big hit because the Chinese government has actually penalized many of the subsidiaries amongst these tech conglomerates for not complying well enough. Right. Or, or, or what you see is they have to uh, add a lot of costs, basically putting more and more staff basically on the balance sheet to actually monitor these things. So all, all of these tech platforms have basically heavy internal surveillance uh, operations to make sure that the kinds of stuff that isn't supposed to be on there, according to the Chinese government, doesn't show up. Yeah. So, look, you know, um, when it comes down to it, I d- do I think Dr. Ford is correct? Unfortunately, I do. I, I Unfortunately, it is true that the Chinese government is abs- absolutely using tech monopolies. We've spoken about this on the program before um, to help control and regulate, you know, basically how people operate and behave within China. What is interesting is we're now seeing um, the, uh, the great firewall within China expand to Russia and now Africa, um, U- Uganda is now putting in the infrastructure as well as Russia to have similar internet infrastructure that China has, where they're able to monitor all the traffic. They're able to shut down things from coming in or out, uh, of the internet within the country. And just have very heavy, uh, heavy handed regulation and insight as to, you know, what people are doing online. Um, And so this is the dawn of two internets. This is the dawn of seeing basically the non-totalitarian authoritarian state run internets and then the totalitarian and authoritarian state internets in China now moving to Russia, now moving to parts of Africa. and uh, and I think what is interesting by this statement from Dr. Ford, and we'll see where this goes in, in trade and all these things, what we've spoken about many times before is that you see um, where you see in emerging markets, in emerging countries like India, you see U.S. tech monopolies and Chinese tech monopolies duking it out quite aggressively. Yes. There's actually a story this week about the flood of Chinese venture capital that's going into India. And look, Chinese tech monopolies also have a presence in the U.S. Alibaba's in B2B in yep. the U.S., right? I mean, um, it, I mean, ByteDance, the largest private tech company in the world, Chinese tech platform company, has TikTok Huge massively in popular US. in yep. the U.S. So there is definitely a strong presence of Chinese tech monopolies in the U.S. and in emerging markets. So... Is this a foreshadowing of the state government potentially imposing uh, penalties or sanctions on Chinese tech monopolies? Man, that would really be an escalation of things. Um, And uh, I mean, the Huawei argument makes sense from an infrastructure standpoint, right? From um, having a backdoor into all the telecommunication infrastructure. We saw this in another case, though, with... Uh, I forget the company that bought Grinder, which is basically the gay dating app in yeah. the U.S. And the U.S. government was not happy about that because they were concerned about basically privacy concerns. And, you know, would this be used uh, to help Chinese government surveillance of people that were on the app in you know, the U.S. and other parts of the world? So this isn't 
Huawei, there's definitely the national security concerns about, you know, the hardware going into key backbones for internet systems. This has popped up in other places where you see concerns about platforms and the data that they have. Yeah, it's really interesting. Now, one interesting, um, you know, outside of just trying to ban these companies, you know, if you actually turn the script back on China, you know, what China did to basically any any tech company trying to go into China said, well, um, you know, all your code, all your engineers, you know, all those all those assets and IP need to be in China. Right. And we need to have access to it and all these things. Um, that's a pretty in tall some cases, order. You have to have a Chinese joint venture partner uh, in China that's based at a Chinese company, basically, and you have to give them access to yep. some of your IP. But a middle ground, I would say, would be if, 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 say, the Department of State, you know, wants to actually take a step forward on this, would be to do something akin to saying you need to have staff, servers, you know, the data, and, and put regulation and, and requirements around um, actually having more significant operations that are based in the U.S. if you're bringing your services to the U.S. market and just put greater um, uh, scrutiny around those businesses uh, that are coming here and operating here. Because right now, I guarantee all of this data, to your point about Grindr, is going back into China and is then being sucked up into the, you know, the Chinese government's data machine. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you wanted to make the argument that that's a national security threat, you could. Um, just if you look at the data and if you centralize that and then you look at the ability, you know, there's a lot of articles about, um, about the Chinese government kind of recruiting uh, um, intelligence officials from the U.S., right. And, and, you know, paying them off and bribing them for secrets and like information. using LinkedIn to do this. And using LinkedIn of- <laughs> and social media platforms to do this. So if you wanted to make the argument, you could. Um, I think banning them is probably pretty extreme. But, you know, certainly, again, putting controls around this. Um, if you have concerns, that to me would be kind of a middle ground. Um, as opposed to kind of just blanket uh, banning them from, from, uh, from operating. But um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. So uh, last topic for today is Walmart and groceries. Now, the interesting thing with Walmart, one of the reasons why Walmart's e com initiatives have been able to outperform quarter over quarter over quarter, yes, the marketplace has been powerful and impactful for them, but almost more powerful is the ability to do pickup in store of groceries. And so I'm still now ordering that online. And then someone in Walmart is, is, is going, picking up the groceries, bagging them for me, and boom, I just picked that up on my way home. Right. I think maybe 40% of Walmart's revenue is from groceries. So groceries- It's huge. And it's, the reason it's big for them is not just the volume, but that it's a regular purchase. So if I, you know, if I go to Amazon and I'm just buying house supplies, maybe I go there once a month and you know, I do my regular fill up. But if I'm going to Walmart or you know, doing grocery shopping, that's something most people do at least every week, if not multiple times a week. So that's bringing me- to Walmart's website if I'm ordering online on a regular basis. That's a big part of why Amazon is going heavily after groceries is not just the size, but the frequency. Yeah. It's about building that habit, yep. going to Amazon every week and buying groceries and having it come to my front door. Mm -hmm. uh, so Walmart, big advantage they have is they are, I think, basically the largest grocery retailer in the U.S. by mm -hmm. some margin. Mm -hmm. uh, and having having that retail footprint that they have and ability to handle these kinds of perishable goods and 
customers coming to them, that in-store pickup has been very powerful and taking that online traffic that they've been, they've been having and then driving it to actually increase in-store revenue. So you've seen at the same time that, uh, at the same time that the online revenue is increasing this 40%, you know, quarter over quarter growth that they've been having, uh, the, the in-store revenue is also growing in tandem with that. And a lot of that's driven by this in-store pickup because, oh, hey, I'm here, I'm picking up my groceries. Maybe I need to go get that other thing too at Walmart. I'm already there. It's bringing a lot more foot traffic into the store really reversing that kind of uh, you know, retail death spiral we've been talking about in some other areas by bringing those two worlds together. Right. And now what they're saying is for $98 a year, I'll give you unlimited delivery, free delivery of groceries to your home. Right. Sounds like an Amazon Prime membership to me. Yep. Um, with the back door being grocery. Yep. As opposed to kind of, you know, the, the everything, um, the everything store, which is right. where, well, if, where if Amazon they're in your home every it. week delivering you groceries, they can certainly give you just about anything else if you want it. Right. It's right. Walmart. They have a lot of scale. They've got, I think, roughly 100 million SKUs now, 50 million different discrete products, basically. Uh, if you're buying groceries from me multiple times a week or at least once a week uh, and you need toilet paper now, why are you going to go to Amazon and get it when I'm already delivering stuff to your house? Look at this stat. Walmart said it has more than 45,000 personal shoppers helping it pack grocery orders for customers every day. That is more than half the employees that Delta Airlines has total. <laughs> I think Delta has 80,000 employees. They've got 40,000, 45,000 people just packing groceries up different pay scale but yeah just the scale that they have um in grocery is definitely not something to be underestimated yeah i, th- I think you know a lot of it has been made about i'm amazon i'm gonna go buy whole foods but there's still like orders of magnitude behind walmart in terms of their impact on grocery and the big advantage walmart has in e-commerce yes they're you know playing a 20-year catch-up game with amazon and they've made a lot of strides with that but they're still way behind the big thing they do have is all this grocery input and revenue. And if they can transfer that to online, uh, it's going to be very hard for Amazon to overcome that. And Amazon may still be, you know, be number one in a lot of the other stuff, but it'll be very hard for Amazon to ever really catch up to Walmart on groceries. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the other thing is that Target acquired Shipt in 2017, which was an Instacart competitor. Right. I haven't really heard much about how that's going, but I think you know to really capture what you're talking about here with the Walmart play, the idea is that shipped would need to become more than just grocery delivery, right? What grocery is the foothold right. into the home to have this kind of membership program. Right. But food is super low margin. Uh, it's tough to make money on it. You've seen this in all the different you know, restaurant delivery. Amazon still hasn't figured out and no one's really figured out how to make money profits from uh, grocery delivery. So the way the way that's going to work is if you can at least get it, you know, close to break even, and then it enables you to then cross sell all the other stuff you have into the home. Then that starts to make a lot more sense. Yeah. And rather than just doing groceries by itself, which is why you haven't seen a in-home grocery delivery startup at scale be able to compete with a Walmart right. or an Amazon, it's really these two big companies going at it. And that is what I have not seen shipped really do is how can they basically put Target's product catalog and much more, Yeah. right? How can they embrace marketplace, third-party sellers? And bring it into your home. And, and then bring it into your home via shipped yep. and use the grocery as, as, the, you know, as the wedge in the door. Um, so yeah, I think you know, maybe they could try this, but there's certainly, I mean, they bought it two years ago. I don't, 
I don't really know what they've been doing with it. Um, but they've got to be bringing these two things together. Yep. And that's what Walmart has really done so well after they bought Jet, integrated Mark and the team of Jet into the ranks of Walmart. And they've really um, brought about true organizational change um, and put these different marketplace initiatives, the, 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 you know, the e-com, the grocery, and started to put these two things, you know, multiple things together. Um, even on the fulfillment side and the logistics side as well that we've seen. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think shipped has kind of stayed more maybe siloed. It's not as deeply integrated into the target, uh, ecosystem. Um, and that ultimately is not going to win. You can't just buy this thing and keep it totally well, separate. I think it's target a fine also, line of target also hasn't made as much progress on e-com and marketplaces as Walmart has. Right. They're definitely way behind on that. And they're you know, dabbling with curated marketplace, which is basically the partnership That's program. True. Yes. Very so slowly they, they rolling really, it out. They really don't have the, the growth in the e-com that a Walmart has to feed that momentum. And I don't think, Unless they really embrace that marketplace model with the way Walmart has started to, I don't think they're going to get there. Yeah, and they launch a curated third-party marketplace called Target Plus in February. But again, as we've said before, you need to be talking millions of SKUs. Millions of SKUs. This curated thing just isn't going to cut it. And how is this and shipped coming together? Right. And I just don't, you know, it's not clear um, how they can leverage both of these things and have them share these synergies. So, um, yeah, Target's clearly got more work to do, but hey, Walmart, we like it. Keep it up. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week.